0: On Christmas Eve, I caught the flu. I spent Christmas Day wrapped in a blanket, racked with chills, intense coughing, and more. Clutching a negative COVID test didn't make me feel any better. Influenza didn't care. I think it wants its championship belt back and it's willing to fight in my lungs to get the title. So I will say I am slowly getting better. I spent a week whispering like the Godfather before being able to growl like Darth Vader. But this will be a shorter episode as my voice is still a bit weak. And I talk a lot. It's an occupational hazard of podcasting. So a week of silence led to some interesting insights. And I'd like to share some of those insights with you in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead, Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living writing books worth talking about. So the first insight is that a great book is not enough. When all I could do was whisper, my children couldn't hear me tell them to be careful even if they really needed to hear me tell them to be careful. It doesn't matter how much they need to hear me. The only thing that matters is my ability to make myself heard. And whispering, be careful, as loud as I could, I think, prolonged my recovery. (laughs) I don't think that is the appropriate treatment for laryngitis. The publishing world is a bit like a house full of chattering toddlers. Uh, When readers don't hear about your book, they don't know about your book and they can't read it, even if your book is really good. But I know you're thinking, yeah, but if the book is good enough, it will market itself, right? Well, you tell me. Yesterday, roughly a thousand new books were released, and today another thousand new books were released. Which one was the best? Which one is the absolute best of all thousand books? You see, a book existing on Amazon is like a phone number existing in the phone book. The phone will ring only if people go to the phone book searching for the number. And if you think that is an old-fashioned metaphor, just wait. (laughs) The word platform comes from a tool used in the 18th century by Great Awakening preachers to speak to audiences of tens of thousands of people. You're like, well, that's no big deal. People speak to tens of thousands of people all the time. But here's the thing. This was before the microphone was invented. <laughs> this was without electronic amplification. How on earth was someone able to speak to tens of thousands of people without electronic amplification? Well, They did it with a platform. I'll have a picture in the show notes of this episode, a contemporary picture from the 1800s that I found on Wikipedia. It's a platform is an elevated stage. So the floor of the stage is above eye level for people standing in the crowd, and then there is a wall behind the speaker and a slanted roof above the speaker. And the purpose of the platform is to direct and focus the sound of the speaker to the audience. So nowadays, obviously, we have microphones and blogs and all the rest of it. So authors don't have to build their platforms out of wood. But if you want to reach readers, you need to build your platform out of something. (laughs) These wooden platforms didn't make the person speak louder. They simply focused his voice in a single direction. And this actually is a really powerful principle. Behind the platform, the speaker was harder to hear because of the platform. More sound waves forward meant fewer sound waves behind. Now, a common mistake that new authors will make is to target too broad of an audience. And this would be like dismantling that wooden platform because you want the people behind you to be able to hear better. But here's the thing, the people behind the platform don't want to listen. Not everyone in the 1700s wanted to go to a revival. Not everyone cared what Charles Finney had to say. And so, by trying to reach the people who don't want to listen, you sacrifice the people who do, right? The only way you're going to reach that person straining to hear in the back of the crowd is by focusing on that person in the back of the crowd. You know your book isn't for everyone. You've heard this a million times. Every marketing person, every editorial person says your book is not for everyone. But you may not realize just how focused your audience needs to be. If you were to speak on one of those old wooden platforms, I would coach you to pick a single person in the back of the crowd and speak just to him. If the tall guy in the back can hear you, everyone else can hear you too. And this is still my advice today. Instead of writing to an audience of generic readers, write to a specific single human being, someone that you can actually ask questions to and observe. I call this person Timothy. (laughs) And if you can thrill this one person, you can thrill the many. And if you want your book to be approachable and popular, narrow the audience, and it actually will make it more popular. This focus will clarify your writing and help you focus your marketing efforts on what works. Speaking of platform building, this leads us to my second piece of advice, which is to build your own platform. When you're first starting out, borrowing someone else's platform can help you get experience, and it can help you get your name out there but it gives the platform owner power over your future. So for example, let's say you've built a big following on TikTok. Your videos get lots of views and lots of engagement. The TikTok algorithm puts your videos on the For You page of strangers and things are going good. But TikTok can take your videos off of the For You page just as easily as it put them on. Or TikTok could get banned. You may be like, that's crazy. No one would ever ban TikTok. Well, actually, it's already been banned by the largest democracy in the world. India has made it illegal to use TikTok because they see it as too dangerous. But you're like, wow, but that wouldn't happen in America, would it? Well, let me put it this way. The United States Senate voted a couple weeks ago on whether or not to ban TikTok for government employees. And do you know how the vote went? All of the Republicans voted for it, and all of the Democrats voted for it, and both independent senators voted for it. The vote was unanimous. Can you think of the last time the United States Senate did anything unanimously? I can't. (laughs) That is stunning to me. Shocking. Like, Republicans can't even agree with each other on things, and yet somehow they agree with Democrats without a single dissenting voice that TikTok is dangerous. And if you had watched the Senate testimony, which I have, you'll know exactly why they're so concerned. I don't think anybody would feel comfortable using TikTok after watching the TikTok employees testify under oath before the United States Senate. (laughs) There's a reason why the Senate is looking really suspiciously at TikTok and what starting with government employees may continue to the rest of the country. So don't be surprised if you wake up one morning and the TikTok app no longer works. And if you build your audience on TikTok, it could vanish and you have to rebuild with whatever else you have. (laughs) And if all you have is TikTok, you've now lost everything. The Indians who were building their followings on YouTube shorts or Instagram reels recovered better from the TikTok ban than the Indians who did not. And so we can learn from India. India was the first major country to ban TikTok. Other countries are, are racing to ban TikTok. States and local municipalities are starting to take action. TikTok is a very dangerous app. And I could do a whole episode on TikTok. I don't know how many of you use TikTok or are curious about it, but I have a lot to say about TikTok and that's not the focus of this episode. But I will say, if you are a TikTok user, make sure to have a TikTok recovery plan upload each video to Instagram Reels and YouTube Shorts in addition to TikTok. Instagram and YouTube are both American-owned companies. They're not going to get banned, and they are trying to copy TikTok. They're not as addictive. The algorithm isn't as finely tuned. They don't have as many users, but they will immediately and instantly become insanely popular if TikTok does get banned. (laughs) So this is the first time I've I've talked about TikTok on the podcast, and part of that is because I, I don't recommend it. I don't see it as a reliable place to build a platform. And the surge from BookTok, which is the part of TikTok that talks about books, there was a surge of sales that was triggered by BookTok. But it wasn't initiated by authors. In fact, the authors often had no idea their books were spiking in sales until after a long time. <laughs> their publisher was like, hey, are you doing anything to promote the book? And they're like, I'm not doing anything. Why is the sales going up? It was because readers were talking about the books on TikTok, which was great. It's great serendipity if if teenagers start recommending your book to each other on TikTok, but it's not a reproducible strategy. It's also a strategy that's not even working as well now as it was even a few months ago. But the bottom line is TikTok is just a metaphor for a bigger trend in platform building, and it can be summed up in one word, sharecropping. So, What is sharecropping? Well, back in the day, if you wanted to be a farmer, you could buy your own land and turn it into a farm. Or you could sharecrop and get the land for, quote, free, unquote. With sharecropping, the landlord lets you farm his land in exchange for a share of the crops. In fact, my wife's great-grandfather was a sharecropper here in Texas. Getting farmland for free sounds like a great deal, (laughs) and why spend money buying your own land when you can just share someone else's land for free? Well, the problem is, is that when you sharecrop, what you build, you don't own. A house that a sharecropper builds belongs to the landlord, because it sits on land that the landlord owns. Did you spend months clearing stones from a field to make a wall to keep the animals out? Well, that wall belongs to the landlord he could kick you off the land and keep the wall and the house for himself. And now he has a field free of rocks. Or he could change the deal. Did the landlord take a 30% share of your crops last year? Well, this year he's taking a 35% share. And there's little you can do about it. He who owns the land makes the rules. Turns out sharecropping is just a fancy form of serfdom. It's slavery and high heels. So what ended sharecropping in the United States? Well, the answer is in one word: tractors. And the landlords bought tractors and fired the sharecroppers. These newly unemployed farmers, who'd spent their lives or perhaps generations working on land and improving their land, got kicked off that land once the landlord was able to use the land more efficiently without them. Right? One farmer with a harvester can do the work of ten farmers without an, an automated harvester. And the newly unemployed farmers fled the small towns into cities looking for work. And this is why if you visit rural small towns today, they often have smaller populations now than they did a hundred years ago, despite the fact that the United States has three times the overall population. The sharecroppers and and the farmers got pushed out and off the land because the tractors were able to do it so much more efficiently. So when we talk about automation destroying jobs, realize this is a trend that's been happening For a long time. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Working in a field harvesting crops is backbreaking, terrible work. You know, those people who fled to the cities often got better jobs in the cities. And they're probably your ancestors. They were my ancestors. (laughs) My wife's great grandfather, you know, his son went into the city, right? Because the jobs weren't there on the farm. And he got a better job, and his son got a better job, and my wife got an even better job. And, And here we are today. But we still have sharecropping. We don't have sharecropping in the old-fashioned, share-the-wheat kind of way, but we do have digital sharecropping. And digital sharecropping is when you build your platform on someone else's digital real estate. If you're not the customer, you're the product being sold, right? Facebook let you talk to 100% of your audience back in 2008. Then, in 2015, you could talk to 30% of your audience. And now you're lucky if you can reach 1% of your audience without paying money. Facebook owns the digital land and they make the rules. When you borrow someone else's stage, they control the volume of your microphone. If you're not in the room where the decisions are being made, you're at the risk of losing your voice without warning and without compensation. So it's not just a Facebook thing. It's not just a TikTok thing. It's any kind of free platform building. This is why I discourage authors from using social media for promotions. One of many reasons. The other reason is that it just doesn't work very well. Social media is sharecropping. And I will say, I practice what I preach. The community of listeners here, we don't gather on a Facebook group. I pay money for authormedia.social. It's real estate on the internet that I own. Authormedia.com is the website. Authormedia.social is another website that I bought just for the community. So my advice to you is to own your own platform by spending money, Buy your com, own your own email list, blog, podcast, and website. And yes, this may mean that you may need to save some money. Maybe you need to get a day job so you can afford to buy your own digital land, but your freedom is priceless. Don't sell your voice for some free clicks on TikTok. Your voice is far too important. Don't let Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter turn you into a digital surf. The third insight that I had during my time of enforced silence is about whispering. I realized that when I whisper to my toddler, he whispers back, even though everyone else is shouting. (laughs) An otherwise noisy child will match my quiet tone, at least most of the time. And whispering in a house full of noisy children is not an effective way to communicate. In fact, I often had trouble. I'd be talking to one of my kids and they'd be whispering back, even though the other kids are still making noise. I'd have a hard time hearing them. And it was interesting because I didn't want them to whisper. I was only whispering to them because I physically could not speak. And yet they were whispering back. But this is a great metaphor, right? Because if you whisper, the world whispers back. And this is very true in publishing. Many authors wonder why no one is talking about their books, but if you whisper about your book, your readers will whisper too. If you want enthusiastic fans to spread the word about your book, you must demonstrate what enthusiasm looks like. Readers will take their cues from you. Both confidence and insecurity spread like a virus. So what are you spreading about your book? Are you spreading confidence about your book or are you spreading insecurity about your book? So why is the promo for your book echoing like a whisper? Well, it could be for several reasons. So I've been working with authors for a long time, and I've noticed two or three themes that will torpedo the promotion of a book. And it's often because the author doesn't feel good about promoting the book. So the first one is that you wrote the book for yourself. If you wrote your book for yourself, it will feel weird to promote it to others. That weird feeling leads to whispering, (laughs) metaphorical whispering. Obviously, you'll tell some people about it, but you'll do it cautiously and you'll do it without confidence. If you want a book you can promote confidently, you need to write the kind of book that you can promote with confidence. There's a difference between a book written for a reader to enjoy and a book written for the author to enjoy. The more you believe that someone will enjoy your book, the more confident you will be as you talk about it. If your book is more like a personal journal, I recommend setting it aside and use it to nourish new writing written with a specific audience in mind, or even better yet, a very specific reader in mind. Pick a Timothy, thrill the Timothy, and then you have a winner. For more, I encourage you to check out book marketing commandment number one, love your readers as much as you love your book. The second reason that authors whisper about their books is because the book is not ready. It takes a lot of work to master the craft of writing. And if the book you want to promote is the first book you've ever written, it's likely not ready for the intense competition for attention. If deep down you don't believe your book is good enough to shout about, it's not ready. But don't worry. The good news is the book can become ready. It just needs some sweat, study, and feedback. The fastest path forward is to finish the book and then set it aside. Read some other books on craft, take some courses, and then write a new book with the lessons you learned finishing that first book. Getting a, quote, first book, unquote, into shape requires the work of an experienced author. And so you need to become an experienced author. And the best way to do this is by working on other books first rather than revising the same book over and over again. You can get there, revising the same book over and over again, but it is by far the slowest path forward. For more on this, I encourage you to check out book marketing Commandment number nine, thou shalt not publish thine first book first. The third reason that books get whispered about is because they have no book launch. Now, let's say the book is good. It's really good. And there are a lot of great new books that get overlooked because their authors don't know how to promote them or they get lost in the noise, right? they are shouting on social media, but everybody else is shouting on social media. And so no one notices. So you could pay for amplification, but the free social media microphone is not plugged in anymore. So one way to break through the noise is to plan all of your promotion, all of your spreading the word activities, whether it's blogging or doing PR, emailing your lists, right? There's a bunch of different things that you can do to get the word out. Advertising, you have them all hit all at the same time. and It's kind of getting a group to all shout at the same time. And that focus helps break through the noise. This focused promotion of a book works best when the book first comes out. In fact, it's a technique called a book launch. Now, I'll be talking about how to conduct book launches a lot more over the next several weeks. So once a year, James L. Rubart and I host a special course called the Book Launch Blueprint. And unlike the other courses that are self-paced, this one everyone does each day together. It's a four-week course. Everyone does day one together. Everyone does do day two together and so on. And at the end, you have your own plan for launching a book. It's our most popular course. It's one that we've been doing for years and years. And I'll be doing some episodes about book launching leading up to that course. And if you want to learn how to prep, plan and execute an effective book launch, the kind of book launch where you don't have to rely on social media, this course will teach you how to do it, including my special book launch team method. I have this. I have it a method for doing launch teams. It's very different from the method that most authors use and it's much more effective. <laughs> and the only place that I teach it is in the Book Launch Blueprint. So I put a lot of stuff on the podcast for free, but my Book Launch Team method, I only teach inside of the Book Launch Blueprint. I'd like to thank our new December patrons. Our new patrons this month as Lanisha Adams, Lori Keesley, Steve Garrity, uh, Gunnar Rogers, Nancy Major, Robert Nordlander, Sheriff Fazula, Bonnie Lacey, and Kelly Martindale. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate your support. You're the ones who help make this podcast possible. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our producer is Laurie Christine. The audio engineering is by William Umstadt. And the blog post version is crafted by Shauna Lettler. To read that blog version, you can visit authormedia.com slash 353. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.